Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our Greenbrier campus. Thanks for listening. All right, if you have a Bible, open it with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. So have you noticed um, that our world is constantly in conflict these days? Like it's just, um, it's everywhere, right? Um, I mean, just start small, even things like sports. There's, there's conflict uh, of opinions and different things. Some people um, like cheering for teams that win. Other people cheer for the hogs, you know. Um, sorry, I had, to get, I had to get that in there. So sports, I mean, sports causes conflict uh, these days. Uh, politics, man, politics, it seems like everything right now is politicized and you have to choose a side on, on something. You remember the days when you're, you didn't really know how people voted? <laughs> like it was considered rude to ask somebody how they voted on, on something. Now it's on social media and, and you know things about people and their opinions and different things and it makes you just like not even want to associate with them. It's crazy, right? We all have to choose sides all the time, um, it seems like, and everything is politicized. Every, every agenda is, is politicized. Um, the news causes conflict. Like, do you remember when the news just told the news? <laughs> um, now, man, they, they just want to create outrage and, and division. Like, there's, that's their whole, whole goal, it seems like, is just to create Division. In fact, just this past week, uh, Fox News had to settle a court case for close to $800 million because they were twisting truth. Um, they, they admitted to it. They were twisting truth. Why? To cause division, to pander to their audience because division sells, conflict sells. And so that's what, that's what they, were, they were doing. So in our culture, we see conflict everywhere, but also it happens in the church. Satan wants to cause uh, disruption. Satan wants to divide the church. He wants us focused on anything and everything other than what actually matters, which is Jesus Christ is king and the world needs to know that, right? But if we're not careful, like the church gets caught up in different uh, kinds of conflict around different issues, whether it's secondary or, or what you might call tertiary uh, theological issues, uh, basically things that that are less than, we'll, we'll start to fight about those things. We'll fight about just preferences and opinions and things that we like and, and, and things like a worship style or what the pastor wears on Sunday or um, things even like uh, color of paint on the walls and color of carpet in churches. You know what I'm talking about? Churches will fight over those kind of things. I grew up um, in a Southern Baptist church I've been Southern Baptist my whole life. Vance Pittman last week, uh, he said he was Baptist before he was a believer, and I identify with that. Like, that's, that's my story as well. I was in church uh, from, uh, well, in the womb. I was, I was in a Southern Baptist church, right? And so um, I remember one time our church was um, trying to pick our next, uh, the color of our, our carpet that we were going to put into the worship center. Right, and, and what Baptists do uh, to try and avoid conflict is we've adopted the, the democratic voting system that has worked really well uh, here in America, right? But anyway, so churches will vote on everything. 
So that's what our church was doing. We we're going to vote on the color of carpet. And so what my church decided to do, um, this, was, this was early 90s, all right? I was probably six or seven years old. And uh, we put up on the front wall um, this panel of all these different carpet color choices. It would have been like right here, right? This is where it would have been. And so all these different colors were on there. And you were supposed to go up and vote on your favorite color of carpet and then also the upholstery that was going to go on all the pews, right? And I'm pretty sure you're only supposed to vote once. <laughs> but little six or seven-year-old David, every week, I mean, it was up there for a couple of months. Every single week, I voted at least once, but usually multiple times a week for this really, uh, it's like this teal blue carpet, right? That's what I voted for multiple times every Sunday. Well, that color won um, because we were a small church, and if you're voting multiple times, uh, I swayed the vote heavily as a six or seven-year-old kid. And so the, uh, the second place was, uh, you've seen it, the, the red color that everybody was putting in their churches in the 90s. That came in a close second, um, but we got a teal blue color in our worship center uh, that would have made you seasick as you came in there. Even like a year later, I was like, man, this color is kind of tacky, you know, but uh, I did it. And a couple years ago, I was invited back there to preach on a Sunday, and I confessed, and it felt really good to to get that off my chest, you know. But things like that will cause division. We'll, we'll want to vote or we, we just, you know, get all up in arms about opinions and preferences and different things like that. In John chapter 17, uh, Jesus, he's praying, and in fact, it's the longest prayer recorded in the Gospels. And in John chapter 17, like we, we celebrated Easter uh, two weeks ago, and so we're kind of backtracking a little bit. This is right before the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. And in this prayer, he prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for you. Like, he prays for, for you and for me. And if we could, like, just stop and think about how amazing that is, right? That, that most of the Bible is not written directly to us or about us. You know that, right? Like, it's, it's written to churches 2,000 years ago and, and different things. Definitely applies to our life and... And if you've been around long enough, you know that I believe that 100%. Um, but this prayer is specifically about us. Jesus is praying about us and for us. And so I don't know what you're carrying in here this morning, but that's got to just add a little bit of spring to your step that Jesus, before he goes to the cross, he takes time and he prays for you and for me. And this is the last recorded words of Jesus in the book of John before the scene of his betrayal and his arrest. And he prays for us. That's, that was what was on his mind in this crucial hour, was praying for us. And what he prays for is that we would be united. That we would be united. That we would not let conflict uh, disrupt what we're doing. He says, Father, make them one. That's what we're going to look at. Before we do, I want us to pray. All right, so I'm going to pray for all of us, and why don't you just take a second and just pray for yourself as, as I pray. Let's, let's go to the Lord. God, we want to ask that you would do what only you can do, and that is speak to our hearts. I need a voice bigger than mine in this moment. We all do, and so we're asking that through the Spirit, through the Word, that you would speak directly to our lives. Help us to follow you. Help us to walk in in unity. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, John chapter 17, look at verse 20 with me. 
Jesus prays this. He says, I pray not only for these. He's talking about his disciples that he just, that he just prayed for in verses uh, 6 through 19. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word, through the word of the disciples, the ones who wrote most of Scripture. That's us, right? The ones who believe through the word. Verse 21, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one that the world may know you have sent me and have loved, me, have loved them as you have loved me. What he's praying there is he's praying for unity and he, and he uses this language multiple times, says, Father, make them one. I wanna show you three things that he's praying here that we would be united around. First, he says, number one, that they be one in relationship. One in relationship. Verse 21, he's talking about, that he mentions several times throughout this whole prayer, the relationship between himself and the Father. Multiple times throughout this, this prayer, that the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and that the Father rejoices and delights in the Son, and the Son delights and rejoices in the Father. They are, they are one, right? And that's what you and me, that's what we're invited into. We're invited into that kind of family-type relationship here. That's the, that's the good news of the gospel message. That we are separated from God, but he's done the work to invite us into relationship, all right? And, and so our sin separates us from God, but Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, he opens the pathway for us to be in relationship with, with God, all right? And, and John 20, 31, John says, I'm writing these things so that you would believe and that by believing you would have life. That's the offer that's extended to us. This is, this is what we would say is the basis of our unity as a church. First and foremost, our basis for, for unity is a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus, all right? Through the gospel, through what he's done for us, we can have a personal relationship with Jesus. And it's that vertical relationship that then uh, uh, bonds us horizontally. Does that make sense? Our vertical relationship a personal relationship with Christ, trusting in his finished work for our salvation, then bonds us as a church. It bonds us horizontally. We are, as a church, we are bonded through Christ. We become family. We become brothers and sisters. And so Jesus here prays. He says, I pray that they would be one. I pray that they would be one. Now let's talk about that for a minute because if we're not careful, we'll misunderstand what he's saying there. And when he says that they would, be, they would be one, we might start to think that, that he's talking about that we might all act alike and look alike and be alike and all of these different things, talking about basically uniformity. When I think of that, I think of, think of Star Wars. Um, I think of uh, the stormtroopers. You know what I'm talking about? The stormtroopers follow around Darth Vader. They're the guys in, in all white. They're just mindless and faceless and nameless, just army of people. They all look alike and sound alike. But that's not how Scripture talks about the church. You know, 
Paul um, uses the analogy of the human body to describe the church, that there's many different members of the body. They all have different functions and skills and different things, but they make one body. That's how scripture talks about the church. So it's not talking uniformity, where we all just think alike and be alike and, and do all the things. That's not what he's talking about. That, that's how you might describe a cult, right? That, that's not what he's talking about. Jesus prays for unity, not uniformity. And that's important. He prays for unity, not uniformity. See, our God is, is creative. He's the most creative being to ever exist, and he creates us with individual skills and talents and passions and things, and he bonds us together. He doesn't just want an army of people who just look and think alike. There's beauty in the diversity of the church, right? I mean, think about it. Every week, our church, is, our church gathers and is made up. Just this, this, just this group in this room, like, is made up of people who are moms and dads and grandparents, people who are single, people who are married, children, students, nurses, doctors, accountants, builders, business owners, retirees. We got all kinds of people represented in this room, right? We didn't all go to the same school, didn't go to the same college, don't cheer for the same teams. There's really no reason for this group of people to gather every single week except for the common bond that we all share, right? Except for the common bond that we share, and that is the bond that we share in Christ. So don't, we don't just gather as acquaintances. We don't just gather even as friends, but we are brothers and sisters who gather to worship Christ, to learn about him, hear from him, and serve him. So we're not bonded by how you vote, what you look like, where you live, how much money you have, where you went to school, what you think about different things. We're not bonded by any of those kind of things. We are bonded together by the blood of Jesus and the radical life change that we've experienced in him. So in him, we are united. We are one. A.W. Tozer, he says, he says this, that unity in Christ is not something to be achieved it's something to be recognized, that through the bond of Christ, we are brothers and sisters, right? So we are bonded. We are family. And just a side note, like that includes our brothers and sisters at other Jesus-following churches, right? So, so we have brothers and sisters who are not in this room. You understand that, right? So people who are down the street at Cross Point or New Life or Spring Hill or Emmanuel or the Nazarene Church, or the Church of Christ, or all of these different places, we are brothers and sisters with them. Now, I do believe that you find a local church and you jump in with both feet, absolutely. You jump in, you serve, and you give, and you invest with that group of people, but our brothers and sisters down the street are never the rival. <laughs> They're never the rival. We're on the same team. When they win, we all win. Does that make sense? So, a relationship with Christ bonds us together as brothers and sisters, as, as family. That's what Jesus is praying here, that we would be united as one family, one in relationship. Number two, he prays for one in glory. One in glory, verse 22. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, this one is, uh, was more confusing this week, trying to study. This, this one was kind of fuzzy. I, I didn't completely understand what he was saying here. So what does glory mean? How are we one in glory? Well, glory means the splendor of God. That's what glory means, the splendor of God. And, and splendor means a magnificent appearance. And so 
so in a lot of ways, glory in my mind is very visual, right? It's, it's, it's a very visual term, and that's how John thinks about it as well. In fact, John 1.14, in the opening verses of the book of John, um, where he says, that, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he says, we observed his glory. Like we could see it. It was visual. We could see his glory as the one and only son from the father. And he says this, full of grace and truth. So his glory was, was we were able to observe it with our eyes, and, and he was full of grace and truth. All right, grace and truth. That's how we see glory. And then he says here that he's given us his glory. He's given us uh, us this kind of glory, meaning this, that the glory of Christ should be visible in our lives, displayed through grace and truth, right? Displayed through grace and truth. So what, what are those things? What is grace, grace and what is truth? Well, grace is unmerited favor. That's, that's the famous definition I'm sure you've heard, unmerited favor. It's seen best in the love and the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross, and so we, as followers of him, we interact in this world and with others in an otherworldly type of love. We're sacrificial, we're loving, right? We have a saying around here, we say, for their good and his glory. That's what that means, that we live in that kind of way, sacrificial like Jesus. We show grace in the world. So we are full of grace, but also truth, right? Doctrinal truth, like Truth that comes from the word, things that are true. We believe that you can find truth, and truth is absolute in the world. And so we're not united around just like personal opinions or beliefs. We are united around the revealed truth of God given to us through the writings of the people that Jesus is praying about through the disciples in verse 20. And so we believe what the Bible tells us about us, and about Jesus, and about our place in the world. So, truth does matter, right? Absolutely. Absolutely, truth matters. And we are united around the truth of God's word. And we don't ever budge from it. But we can't forget about grace. <laughs> we can't forget about, about grace. See, some people are what I call jerks for Jesus. Have you ever met one of them? People, you see them a lot online and different things where, where they hold so tight to, to truth and what they believe to be true that they're just a jerk, right? I would say this, that truth with a scowl is not very gracious, right? We are to remember grace, but some people are just mean. Some people in the church are just mean. They're antagonists, right? You know what an antagonist is, right? They're the bad guy. It'd be like Darth Vader, um, which if you're new, you're like, man, there's a lot of Star Wars references today, and I've, I think this is the first time I've ever referenced Star Wars, so I'm not like a huge Star Wars guy, but the antagonist is like Darth Vader or Scar from The Lion King or Thanos, one of those kind of guys. Antagonists in the church are people who intentionally or unintentionally just cause conflict and division within the church, and usually it's driven by a personal agenda, personal preferences, pride, um, a desire for control. And the crazy part about it is, is that when people get that way and they're causing division in the church, 
they usually think they're doing it for the glory of God. They usually think they're serving him in some kind of way. And Jesus prays here saying, don't let that stuff set in. Like, don't, don't let that stuff set in. Be united in glory, fully visible in grace and truth. Be united, fully visible in grace and truth. So can I ask you, what is most visible in your life? What are you projecting out? What, what is most visible in your life? Or maybe I could frame it this way. What would your Facebook friends say is most visible? What would they say you are most passionate about? Would they say that you are a person who is passionate about the kingdom of Christ and the unity of his church, or that you're, a passion, you're passionate about winning debates online? That you're passionate about your political preferences? You're passionate about your opinions or your preferences or different things like that? I have a, I have a social media um, policy, I guess, a personal policy just for myself, and this is, this is descriptive. It's not prescriptive, but, but maybe you, you'll want it. My social media goal is this. I want people to see that I love my family, and I love my church family, and also fishing and my teams, right? That's it. I want people to see that I love my family, and I love my church family. So first and foremost, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Second, I love Abby, Adley, Dax, and Ames. And then I want people to see that I love the amazing people of Second Baptist Church. That's my goal on social media, and some people, I think, would do well to follow that as well. So what would people online, how would they describe your life? What is most visible? But then also ask this, what, what would your small group say you're most passionate about? What would your small group say that you are most passionate about? Well, they say that person is passionate about building up one another and strengthening the church. Or would they say, eh, that guy likes to talk. He likes to share rumors or gossip or get people on his side. Jesus is saying, be, be one in glory. Live with grace and truth on full display. And that's going to unite us. And also it leads into the final point. Number three, he prays that we would be one in mission. One in mission. You see that in verse Verse 23 says, I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one that the world may know. That the world may know. So we've been told a couple of different times in this passage that the Father and Son are unified in their desire to save the world from sin. It's why Jesus came to this earth. He came on a rescue mission to save the world. And as we draw closer to Jesus, well, we're made, it says, completely one. Completely one because we're focused around the mission of Christ for this world. What's the mission? Uh, the mission is in Matthew 28 when Jesus tells his followers to go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The, the mission of Christ is in Acts 1.8 that you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. That is our mission. That is the vision of Christ for us in this world. And as we draw closer to Jesus, we're made completely one as a church family as we are solely just laser focused on the mission of Christ that he's put before us. And when we do that, man, distractions will fade. Preferences don't matter anymore. Opinions are 
are worthless. Because when we reach that point of laser focus on the mission of Christ, look what happens. We're so unified that the world can't help but notice. So he says, verse 23, that the world may know, that you're completely one, that the world may know. He said in John chapter 13, verse 34, he says, I'm giving you a new command to love one another just as I, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And by this, everyone will know. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Do you see it? He says, I'm praying that you would be completely one. Completely one. He's not just talking about tolerating one another. <laughs> He's talking about actually being one, like a family. Like a family. And so a church is a family that, that loves one another, supports one another, doesn't tear down or gossip about one another, believes the best about one another, lives life with one another, prays for one another. That's what Christ is praying for us. Why? because it'll change the world. It'll change the world because it's so different from our world, isn't it? We talked about that in the beginning. Our world is constantly in conflict and just full of division and hate. This world is vicious. People are constantly at each other. And so Jesus knew that the people of God living unified in the midst of chaos will open the eyes of a lost and dying world because it's different because it's different. And so we fight for that. We fight for unity in the body. So speaking of, of chaos, a couple of weeks ago, tornadoes ripped through, ripped through our, our state, right? Uh, Little Rock and Wynn, Arkansas, took a, a, a bad hit from the, the tornado, and our church uh, was, is, and, and still will be involved in the efforts uh, there in those places. And in fact, in our worship guide, I saw there's a little graphic there. You can contact Ryan. She's got all kinds of ways for you to be involved, even, even now, in helping out those who are affected by, by the tornadoes. One of the ways that we're involved uh, in, the, in the help of those chaotic situations is through what we call disaster relief. And Disaster Relief, if you're not familiar, is the arm of Southern Baptist that rushes into areas of tragedy and chaos and disaster, right? It's made up of people from 47,000 Southern Baptist churches, and our church does have several people involved with Disaster Relief. They're the ones in the yellow shirts, right? If you've ever been watching the news and, and there's natural disaster that's happening. You see the people in the yellow shirts. That's Southern Baptist. That's, that's our people, our brothers and sisters. They're serving on the front lines. They're, they're, they're the first ones in, the last ones to leave usually, right? And they're there united around the mission, united in mission to offer help, healing, and hope. And I promise you, in those moments when they're out there with chainsaws and they're cleaning stuff up and they're praying with people who have been affected or have lost everything, I promise you in those moments, Secondary and tertiary theology doesn't matter. Worship style doesn't matter. The things that we let divide us so easily don't matter in those situations. Why? Because they're united in mission. They understand, like, this is bigger than me. So that's happened here in our own state. 
On Wednesday of this past week, um, my hometown of Shawnee, Oklahoma, was hit hard by a tornado. And um, the place where I, I grew up, went to school, all of that. Oklahoma Baptist University, I don't know if you've seen pictures or not, that's, that's my alma mater, and they, man, they took a huge hit, right? But also, the church that I grew up in got hit hard, the one that I was telling you about with the carpet. Um, that, that was a church that I was saved in, surrendered to ministry in. Um, they took a, a huge, a huge hit by this tornado. And they're a small church, like, probably 150 on a good day, something like that. And they recently moved out of that building where I put the ugly blue carpet in it. And uh, they bought a, a stage department store and they've renovated it and the people have been just working their tails off and it's amazing. And in a new part of town, they're reaching a ton of people for Christ. So the Lord is really working through them now. And so they moved into that new building, I don't know, less than a year ago or something. And, um, and the tornado comes through hits their building, rips air conditioners off the, off the roof, tears holes in the, in the roof and all kinds of things. And as they were looking, um, their insurance deductible was about $10,000. And for a small church, it might as well be a million. You know, they don't have $10,000 on hand to pay that. And plus, they're trying to worry about ministering in their community and reaching people and, and, and serving meals. Even, even this morning, like right now, they're not even able to meet in their building. They're meeting with the church uh, down the road, collectively coming together to worship. And then as soon as they're finished, they're all heading out with chainsaws and all kinds of stuff to help people serve. And so now on top of all that, now they've been hit with, okay, now we gotta, get, gotta come up with $10,000 uh, to cover our deductible. So it did significant damage. Well, on Friday, I was able to make a, a really fun phone call I called, I called them and said that their brothers and sisters in Christ at Second Baptist Church in Central Arkansas who have never met each other, right? We've never met them, probably never will meet till we walk in through the gates of, of heaven. Believe in them, love them, support them, and we're going to be covering that deductible payment for them. Amen. Yeah. So we're able to do that. Like, you just, you just worry about meeting the needs in your community because your brothers and sisters here in central Arkansas, we got your back, right? We got your back. And we're able to do that because you're generous, because you're sacrificial, because you're on mission. In fact, just in the last two weeks, this church has given away close to $100,000 for the ministry of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, right? That's fun to be a part of. That's fun to be a part of. Don't take that for granted. So do you see how beautiful it is when the people of God are united in Christ and united in mission? That's why Jesus is praying this. That's why he is praying this prayer. That's the why. Why would the unity of the church be the last thing on his mind before he's betrayed, arrested, and killed? Why take time to pray this, that, that you and me would be united? Right? Why? He's praying for unity because he knows that we are bent towards disunity. We just are. We're just bent on disunity. It's just more natural. But unity takes conscious effort. 
So disunity in a church, man, it's, it's cancerous in a church body. It's cancerous. And just like cancer, it usually starts small and undetected, but it's deadly. Disunity usually starts with a whisper, but I've seen it kill a movement. It destroys churches. It hinders the mission. Now, Scripture is clear that the gates of hell itself aren't going to prevail against the, the church of Jesus Christ. But Satan does know if, that he, if he can distract, then he can disrupt. Right? And so we've got we've to stay focused because Satan also knows that a unified church is dangerous. A unified church is dangerous, and I believe with all my heart that if the church of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, and it is, then we had better stay focused, not distracted by petty arguments, preferences, or opinions. We had better stay one. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.